This is Pod Populi, podcast for the people. Hi, my name is Dr. Sarah Adams. I am a board-certified pediatrician, but I'm not your pediatrician. Feel free to use my podcast as helpful information, but in no way do I intend my podcast to replace the advice of your physician. Your physician knows you and is in the best position to provide medical advice. Hello, and welcome to Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. One of the opportunities I have of being a podcaster is collaborating and meeting other podcasters. Last week on my show, I was honored to have Dr. Vijay, a holistic dentist, on Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. This week, I am sharing the honor I had of being a guest on Dr. Vijay's podcast, Mind, Body, Mouth. Dr. Vijay and I both agree that oral health and alignment should be a priority when you consider not just your oral health, but your medical health. We'll discuss different strategies we can use as parents to ensure our children grow up with healthier teeth, mind, and body. Our goal is to help motivate children and families to be mindful of their oral and dental health. So take a listen and enjoy. Welcome to Mind, Body, Mouth, a podcast that explores the link between the health of your mouth and the rest of your body. If you're a patient, parent, or fellow practitioner who's curious about how functional dentistry can improve your overall health, this is the show for you. Here's your host, Australian dentist, Dr. Vijaya Malloy. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of the Mind, Body, Mouth podcast. Today, I'm interviewing pediatrician, Dr. Sarah, on different strategies we can use as parents to ensure our children grow up with healthier teeth. Dr. Sarah Adams, welcome to the show. It's wonderful to have you. Thank you so much for having me, especially all the way across the globe. Yeah, it's so great these days we can make these things happen. So I invited you onto the show because often doctors and dentists do not collaborate, which I think is a shame. And I think we could get much better outcomes for our patients if we did work together. But I know that you as a pediatrician do have a keen interest in dental health. I do. I do. And I I want to say I always have, but I became more interested in particular when the pandemic started because we're always looking for ways to improve our immunity. And so that's really how I became more passionate about oral health and how it's really for these kids and adults too. It's just as important as thinking about things such as mental health. And in fact, not having good oral health even has an impact on our mental health as well. It's a bit of a, a chicken in the egg, isn't it? Because when people fall into a pit of depression, I notice that is one of the first things to go is their oral health. Is that something that you see? Absolutely. I think during, especially during the pandemic, when everybody was isolated, we could only do so much. And just trying to keep up with self-care in general was and has been an issue. But I know every time I get families in, it is something I absolutely talk about every single time from newborns all the way up. And I see up to 21. And it's interesting, all the different ages, the challenges that I see families having. 
I would say one of the biggest challenges, though, is kind of like that school age where they're doing it more on their own and the parents are really relying on them to be brushing their teeth. But then when I ask in the office, they're honest with me and they say, no, I really don't do it every day. So you're right. It is one of the first things I think people will cut themselves some slack, so to speak. But it's so important, especially for growing teeth. Absolutely. So good dental health is about more than just brushing. So let's start from the newborn stage and work up to 21. What sort of things do you focus on with your patients? One of the most important things I think right now, I mean, let's even back up to pregnancy. We know that if a woman is not taking care of her oral health, that that actually can affect the baby's health as well. And we won't go into too much detail like gynecology and obstetrics, but I want to remind people that if you are pregnant, that that is something that you also need to do, not to add more stress to women, unfortunately, but it is something very important because it can actually help the baby. So now the baby's born, and what I usually recommend is taking a washcloth, a clean washcloth, and wiping the gums every morning. And then again, before bed, and even if they're not eating yet, and they're just nursing, for example, which we know breast milk is also very good for oral health, there's still some natural sugars that are involved. And so those are two things that I really try to get them into a routine and habit. Sarah, I'm just going to back up to what you're saying before about the mother's oral health in pregnancy, I did come across some research that that can actually cause a lower birth weight baby. Wow. And that's so good to know. And this was something, honestly, I, again, when I became more passionate, was learning about that it can already affect. So I'm glad that you brought that up because I can see how that can happen. So now we've got the baby home. The baby doesn't have any teeth yet. You spoke about cleaning with a washcloth and breast milk we know is great for the baby, great for the teeth even. But when the teeth start to come through, I have noticed that babies that fall asleep during the night with breast milk in their mouths in a pool, they seem to be susceptible to dental decay. Not all of them, but I have seen a number of them who have really great diets and it's the only thing I can attribute it to. And we know breast milk is really good. So I'm wondering if it's swallowed, it's fine if the baby unlatches, but if it's just left there to pull in the mouth, then it causes dental decay. Is that something that you have seen or you're aware of? Yes, absolutely. And that's why I try to encourage them. I know they're nervous about wiping that mouth some of that pooling. I mean, I think it's so important to just get them to unlatch and swallow is going to be the number one way. And then if you're able to wipe the gums or the teeth, then in addition would also be helpful. I also want to mention in that those first six months, other things that can cause the dental caries or decay can also be bacteria found from a parent's mouth. Have you ever heard of anything like that? Yes, vertical trans. Yes, whether it's kissing, probably the most common way to transmit is by sucking on the pacifier. I know I've seen parents in the office, you know, they'll take the pacifier to clean it. They use their own mouth. And I, I try, I'm always very sensitive, you know, and I don't want to 
you know, make them feel bad, but I just remind them that, you know, there's bacteria in your mouth that you can introduce to the baby. So that's probably one of the other, I mean, you're not going to be able to distinguish, was it from the milk or, or from transmission, but it's a good thing to remind people about. Yeah, I think it's important when there is a parent that has high dental decay, because that is one of the questions I ask my adult patients, what were your parents' teeth like? Or if a parent brings a child, what are your teeth like? Because there is that possibility that the bacteria, but I think it's a very hard one to avoid because we don't want to discourage skin to skin contact between parent and child, but perhaps things like not sharing spoons and as you've said, dummies and so forth. Yes, yes. Not licking the nipple if it's got a bottle or the pacifier, kissing directly on the mouth. I remember my grandmother, she always said, you know, kiss babies on the top of the head. And now that I'm older, I realize, okay, I think she knew what she was talking about. But you're right. We don't want to change bonding. And I think just being aware is probably one of the most important things that that is a possibility. One of the things that I always talk to parents about who have young babies as well is making sure the baby is breathing well through their nose. We want to start encouraging good tongue movement, and that starts from that zero to six months age. The babies initially don't have much movement in their tongue, but the breastfeeding certainly helps with that. And if they can't, the mums can't breastfeed, there's enough pressures on mothers of newborns as there is without telling them they have to breastfeed, but there's other ways around it. Like you can introduce little chewy toys into the baby's mouth at about six months and encourage the movement of the tongue. Is that something that you look at at all? Oh, yes. Yes. I mean, their ability to suck, swallow and breathe, although they're typically born with the ability to do that and do it well, you know, there are some instances where it can be an issue. And so it's absolutely something that I screen for. So a lot of babies these days do seem to have low muscle tone, particularly low tongue tone. So what are some things that you would look out for with those babies? Do you look for tongue ties, for example, or just even lack of strength in the tongue? And what are some things you'd recommend? What are some alerts to the fact that things are not as they should be? Some red flags? when I do notice a tongue tie, I really want to be able to see even in those early months, the baby be able to take the tongue past the lower lip. And so I'll observe for that. And a lot of times, even with the newborns, you'll see it if they're rooting, for example. And then also I talk about breastfeeding and the importance of actually getting a good latch. And a lot of times when they tell me they don't have a good latch. I try to observe if they're comfortable with it to see because getting, you know, the position of the tongue is is so important with breastfeeding. But I think it's really about, like I said, that, I mean, you can look, you know, obviously and see if the tongue is tight or has like what we call a short frenulum, as you know, or I just observe to make sure, can they actually push that tongue past? I also look at the size of the tongue. I've had, because there are some genetic disorders, for example, where the tongue could be enlarged. And so that's something that I look at. So size, shape, and movement. Outside of that, realistically, if I'm concerned, especially if they're not gaining weight well, I will refer, whether it is to a lactation consultant, if they're exclusively breastfeeding, Or if I'm concerned about the suck and swallow and breathe to us, we have them see speech therapy and even do a swallow study. But that's in a more extreme concern. 
The ear, nose, and throat doctor is typically the one that will cut the frenulum if needed. And I don't want to do it right away, but I try to do it as soon as possible just so that we are getting adequate nutrition. Yeah, yeah, that's so important. I'm interrupting this episode to talk about a little project I've been working on. Anyone who has listened to this podcast knows how passionate I am about health, and this is largely because of my own health struggles. I now have a crazy busy lifestyle in which I'm mother to three sons, I commute an hour to work, and I own and run my own dental practice. The only way I can sustain this lifestyle is by putting in place specific habits that ensure I have enough energy to get through the day. To make it easy, I've put all this information into an easy-to-follow online course, Bounce Out of Bed with Energy, the five-week reset for exhausted women, is available at Dr. V's Health Hub. It is $149 US. However, if you use the code PODCAST, that is PODCAST15, in bold, you'll get 15% off at the checkout. So that URL again is D-R-V-E-E-S-H-E-A-L-T-H-H-U-B and use the code podcast 15 and remember all in capital letters. One of the things I also focus on with mums that are feeding is introducing like vitamins like vitamin D, good minerals to the baby as well, just to encourage good solid teeth development, calcium absorption and all that sort of thing in early years because there has been some literature to suggest that vitamin D is really important in the development of good, strong, healthy teeth. Is that something that you touch on in your practice too? Yes, we start all of our newborns with the exception of those that are on formula. And of course, we want to make sure what formula they're on because as you know, they're not all the same. And we've had in the United States problems with resources and formula. So people have gone to other. So let's assume that the formula they are on has a good amount of vitamin D, but all of our babies that are breastfed are pretty much in that first newborn visit in our office are placed on 400 international units of the vitamin D and encouraged to have them take that every day. Yeah. Well, every day. And you're not worried about them overdosing given it's a fat soluble vitamin. You're quite comfortable with that. Yeah, we do it every day. It's literally just, it comes in 400 international units per milliliter. So they give one milliliter. Now, if we have a very low birth weight baby or a preemie, for example, we may start a vitamin that has vitamin D in it. But most of the time, full term, otherwise healthy, it's just the vitamin D. Okay. And do you vary the dose depending on the skin color of the baby? Just given that dark-skinned races have a harder time absorbing the vitamin D, I think they need three times more than Caucasian skin. Not in the newborn period. Typically when we start to adjust that is when we're getting closer to seven, eight, or into the preteen, teen years. But with the newborn, just across the board, 400. We usually don't even test for the vitamin D, to be honest, even in that first year. But if there are concerns about nutrition, poor growth, poor development, then it's something that we think about. But in that first year of life, and even even beyond, I'd say at least the first five to six years, it's kind of a standard dose. That's really great to hear that that's being done, because I think there's more and more research that's emerged 
about the importance of vitamin D and how it's a really great immune protector as well. It's responsible for so many processes in our body and it tends to be the one nutrient that internationally people are really depleted in. So supplementing at birth is fantastic. And getting them used to doing it early on. Once they hit a year of age, then we decide and work with the family because every family is a little bit different. And there may be some children that aren't routinely on it, but honestly, I think that it would benefit, especially I live here in Ohio, which is cloudy nine months out of the year as well. So even the older children aren't getting, and we won't, we need to watch for sun exposure, but they're not even really getting that opportunity except a few months out of the year. So in, particularly in Ohio, our children are very low in vitamin D. I feel sorry for you, only three months of sun a year. Sounds as bad as English. It really is. It really is. Our summers are a little bit warmer and we really have beautiful summers and the falls are nice too. But once we hit late fall till spring comes, the the sun is pretty gone. So that's another reason why we do it. And I do think it absolutely affects their immune system as well. Yeah, I've I read several studies on that. And I think there was even studies around, I mean, this is going off on a bit of a tangent that individuals that had over 50 blood levels of I can't remember the units in which you measure it in, but it was readings of over 50 vitamin D were less likely to end up in hospital with COVID-19 than individuals that were below that. Yeah, I, I can understand that. And that's one of the things, especially when families ask me, what can we do to improve our immune system? And like I said, that was something oral health was became really important to me because I realized That was something that would absolutely make a difference. So we've well and truly covered newborns. Moving on to the toddlers, when they start to get their teeth, is there any changes you make? What sort of things are you looking for? I try to encourage families to brush twice a day. And if the teeth are touching, then to start flossing. Because I always get that question, when should we start flossing? And I I always say, if if the teeth are starting to touch, then that's really, for me, I don't know if that's what you'd say too. That's what I try to tell them, you know, it's time to floss. I think one of the biggest challenges is behavior because, you know, some toddlers are willing to let a parent just brush their teeth and others will not. A lot of times I'll tell them, give your toddler the toothbrush and you have a toothbrush, you know, because they always want to do it themselves. But I'm also very careful about how much they put how much toothpaste and what type of toothpaste they use, because I do strongly believe that you can get too much fluoride. And so I I tell them, you know, even as they get older, watch your child and teach them to rinse and spit or at least spit and to use a very, very small, small amount of toothpaste. In the earlier years, I'll say just like a rice amount, you know, I'll say just a little smear on the bristle. Sarah, I'm just going to wind back to something you mentioned before about flossing with the teeth touching. So the way I have been educated is that the the baby teeth ideally should not touch. If they are touching, it means there's a crowding issue and the jaw is too small. So there should be spaces. I interviewed a pediatric dentist not so long ago, Dr. Kevin Boyd, and he referred to the space should be the size of an American nickel. I'm not sure how wide an American nickel is, but they should be that wide. So ideally, if the child does have teeth close together, it means that there's a crowding issue. They might be mouth breathing. 
they might just be habitually mouth breathing or they could have a low tongue posture. So that brings me on to sleep disordered breathing. Is that something that you watch for in your practice and what sort of red flags would alert you to a problem? Basically, I just ask my history. I talk about sleep because as crazy as I am about oral health and nutrition, but also sleep, because we really underestimate sleep, even in children. So I'll ask about, are there any noises that they make while they're sleeping and what those are? Because sometimes it can be just a normal sound just of breathing, but is not, you know, like a snore. I ask them about if they ever notice their child or their baby not breathe. But even then, I make sure, you know, for a couple seconds, everybody does that. And even newborn babies, as we know, have periodic breathing, which is just seconds and then, you know, take a little deep breath. And But I make sure that they understand exactly what I'm talking about in those situations. So really, it's about how well do they sleep? Do they have frequent waking? Are there any noises that they make? When they do wake up, are they able to self-soothe and get themselves back to sleep? Other things like, do they wake up with congestion? And if they notice that their mouth breathing, for example, at really at any age. And then, of course, their development too, making sure, are they growing and are they developing? Because all of those things play a role in it. I think the biggest thing, you know, and we always say ABC, so on their back alone in their crib, and that I always want to make sure sleep position is also addressed. So what advice would you give a parent regarding sleep position? Again, just flat on their back alone and no, meaning no blankets, bumpers. I mean, they could be wrapped or swallowed in a blanket, but not one that is loose fitting, for example. And no stuffed animals, pillows. And we really don't recommend wedges, for example. If there is a concern about their breathing, then I'm very quick to refer. And depending on the situation, it could be either an ear, nose, and throat doctor, for example, or it would be pulmonology, especially in the early age. When they get older, we do have a clinic that's specific for more that school age and up, and they will see the patients and decide if we need to do any further testing like a sleep study to rule out whether it's obstructive sleep apnea, for example. In that case, we would see ENT. So it just varies on on the reason. I do notice, though, that those that mouth breathe also tend to have more problems with oral health. Do you notice that too? Yes, absolutely. Let's get into that a little bit. What sort of things do you see in mouth breathers? I see more referrals for whether it's they need sealing or they have cavities. And many times, unfortunately, I'm not finding out until after the fact that this is an issue. Sometimes, you know, because they have to come back and see me because they're going to get anesthesia, because that's how most of our, and the younger age group, that's how they have to do these procedures. So I find that it's, that tends to be a problem. I see that sometimes in siblings and they'll all have a similar diet, but the one mouth breathing child will have a higher rate of dental decay. And it's because the acidity of their mouth drops. Four hours of mouth breathing is enough to cause acidity to drop to a level that causes dental decay. So what sort of advice are you tending to give those parents when you see that? Yeah, I think it's important to get to the root cause because in our area, 
much of that can be due to chronic nasal congestion. And maybe they don't even have sleep apnea, but they're so congested that they have kept their mouth open. Now, let's say this is aside from anybody who has any congenital abnormalities or and so on or genetic disorders. But we're just talking about, you know, the average well-developed child. Typically, in my practice, at least, it's, it has more to do with blockage of the nasal cavity. I do have one patient that was born with what we call, you know, the coenal atresia, both sides, poor thing. And so, or they're born with, you know, micronathia or their the jaw. So th- those are different situations, but quite honestly, the congestion. So we try to address the root cause and see if we can help with that. And hopefully that's all it'll take. And how do you generally deal with nasal congestion? Do you give diet advice around that or would you go for medication or what would be your protocol? Yes, I try to look at a whole approach for that, especially, so let's say they have nasal congestion and they have history of wheezing and, you know, they also may have eczema, for example, then I do get concerned about that it it could have something to do with, with the diet. And I try to have them, you know, try to take a good diet history. Allergies, of course, it could be an issue, but, you know, seasonal allergies takes a few years really to play a significant role in that. And then also reflux, like we're talking about different age groups. Babies can have a lot of congestion just because of reflux. And so that can play a role as well. I wasn't aware of that. I know that, yeah, it can cause them to have a lot of distress, but I didn't realize a flow on effect was congestion. That's really interesting. Especially if it isn't, because sometimes, you know, have you ever seen a baby reflux through their nose? Sometimes it's just enough to get in there that it just creates an inflammatory response. So I see that sometimes. So we tried to manage the reflux, which again, with them laying flat, we have to work a lot on position with eating and position before going to sleep. Air quality too. Environment can make a big difference in regards to and what their setting is when when they're sleeping is also important. We've had a lot of rain recently in New South Wales where I live and black spot mold has become a big problem, which is linked to a lot of health problems. Is that something you see in the States? Not very much, thankfully. I haven't had anybody with any significant issues other than allergies, for example, but thankfully it isn't something that we worry too, too much about, but always kind of keep in the back of the mind. So if a parent does have perhaps poor air quality, how how can they screen their air quality? What are some of the things they can do? Because often we're not even aware of what our air quality is like, unless it's really, really bad. Yeah. So the CDC actually has a site that you can, you know, go to, to get information about where you live in particular. Now that's not going to tell you anything about an individual's home per se, but at least that can give you an idea of of different communities. It can be a little bit difficult to navigate, but I would say that's probably one of the best resources. Another is just to talk to your own local government and finding out what they know about it too, because typically they're aware as well. But I would say a good place to start is the CDC. Okay, great. And I know for your own home, In Australia, at least, we have building biologists. Is that something you have available 
in the States, you can get a building biologist to come and check on the health of your home and see if there's any, you know, toxic exposure from anything, any gas leaks, any mold sites. Yeah, I've not heard that particular title, but I do know that local health departments will come in and look for things like you mentioned, as well as other potential hazards such as lead, because we deal with that too. Yeah, thankfully, that's not a big problem for us here. <laughs> Good. Good. Yeah, yeah, every part of the world has their own challenges, right? So moving, moving on through to the school years and the teenage years, what are some things we can do to motivate kids to be mindful of their dental health? Teenage years is when we see a lot of kids gaining independence, not listening to their parents, using their money to buy junk food. And really having this I don't really care attitude, even if they come in repeatedly and need to have fillings done. So how can we handle that? Yes. And you know what, too, even so, I see that in the teenagers, the athletes that are drinking Gatorade or beverages that have a lot of sugar. So they may have some good intention, so to speak, to be healthy, but they don't realize that that something that is could actually be causing them to have cavities, for example. I try to get them to buy in when I'm interviewing and trying to do motivational interviewing with these kids to kind of say to them, you know, really, again, finding out what it is that is the roadblock there, whether it's that they just don't care or if they many times they just don't understand the consequences. And one other thing, other than immunity, I try to focus on the older children is that, I don't know if you've read this before, but I have where actually, if their oral health is bad, it can absolutely affect these teenagers in so many ways. One is their appearance. They just, they might not like the way that their teeth look because maybe they're not as clean or they're stains, for example. So I try to, you know, talk to them about what could be bothering them. And we also know that it has a, a relationship to their learning as well. It's hard to believe that we're talking about oral health and its effect on learning, but it, it's a real thing because if they don't like the way their teeth look, they're not concentrating, if they are in pain or have infection, all of those things affect our learning, whether it's missing school because of their symptoms, all the way to not being able to concentrate because they have something going on with their mouth. So getting back to the question, I really try to explain to them, look, this is why we take care of our teeth, not just only for your immune system so that you can be healthier, but also for the way that your teeth look, your confidence and your learning. And it all affects that because when you do have things like infection and pain, or like I mentioned, you know, the appearance of the teeth, we know kids are very very conscious of how they look, all of those things can play a role. When you talk about the poor appearance of the teeth as it's linked to learning, do you find there's often an underlying social problem or can it just be a direct correlation dental to education? I think that more often it's there's just that there's more than one issue. So that I've never seen a patient, I shouldn't say never. I I can't recall a patient who it was their oral health was the only cause. But 
it certainly it is something that, especially in situations where I feel like I've looked for all the different causes, that that is one that maybe is becoming overlooked. But access too. I mean, I don't know about you, but we weren't even seeing during the pandemic, we weren't seeing patient, older patients for our well visits. And I know they weren't seeing the dentist. So I'm really trying to encourage these older children to get back into the practice of going every six months and seeing their dentist and how important it is. And I really just, I do things like where I'm not just telling them with motivational interviewing, I try to get to where their level is and understand what is going on in their life. Because it's easy for me to say, oh, you need to see the dentist. But what I may not know socially is that the parents don't have the transportation, for example, or the dentist is an hour away or so on. And so I even had somebody the other day and they really needed to get in and they can't get an appointment till February. So access. So I really think it's getting down to their level and understanding socially what the barriers are instead of just telling people, look, this is what you need to do. I think you've addressed a really important point there. It's getting down to people's levels because as caregivers or as healthcare providers, it's very easy for us to tell people what to do. And I know even myself that I don't religiously follow my own advice. So I'll even say that to patients so that they know I'm not just, you know, giving this advice and I'm this paragon of virtue that follows everything, all these impossible rules and routines. It's true. But I think it's really important to get to the level. And often teenagers will not communicate exactly what's going on or even adults. They might be too embarrassed or afraid or ashamed or they might have not even you know, cognitively processed it in their own mind to even be aware. Just going back to the sports drinks, what are some alternatives you can give kids that can still enhance their performance but are not Gatorade or Powerade? Sugar loaded. Yes, hydration with water. We forget again the power of water. And I try to, when I teach them this, I tell them about how the, our bodies are 60 to 70%, mostly 70% water, and how hydration is very important. I try to emphasize just water before practice and during practice. And if they really need something that is a replacement, we talk about other alternatives, even just like milk, for example. But I do emphasize the need for them to then brush their teeth because whatever they choose to do. But water is still a good alternative as well. And then diet, making sure that they are eating to nourish and keeping up many times with teenagers. I often see they won't eat all day. And so what they need to do is I try to teach an approach where it's almost like they're eating about every three hours, you know, I really talk about breakfast and how important it is. And then of course, lunch and dinner, and maybe something even in between to maintain a good sugar level. So you don't get those highs and lows. And I talk about how those are also ways to enhance your performance athletically. So, and we talk about why the different foods are helpful And I really am a strong believer. I don't go into, you know, this is bad food. This is good food. I just talk about what our body does when we eat this food versus that food and how our body uses it. And so nutrition is very important to me when it comes to 
what are some alternatives when it comes to, I really want to, to have good performance. So water and nutrition, I mean, simple as that. Absolutely. I find sometimes the pressure comes from the coaches with a lot of those kids. They'll say the coach is telling me I have to have it. And so I'll actually say maybe just get a bit of a magnesium powder supplement and put it in because that's really what they're after. And also don't brush your teeth straight after having anything acidic. One tip that I use is getting them to chew a bit of hard cheese afterwards. So if they have anything highly sugar, cheese really enriches the saliva with calcium. So it helps neutralize the saliva. So it's really protective against anything acidic. And if they have had something acidic like Gatorade, I'll say don't brush for at least an hour or two afterwards to let the saliva neutralize a little bit. It takes about four hours for the saliva to completely neutralize. Now, and here I'm asking you, what do you think if they use milk, for example, as an after sport drink, which a lot of times I'm seeing that, especially chocolate milk. Well, I guess, I guess. I know. I I mean, chocolate milk is not real milk, is it? It's highly processed. It's got a lot of sugar. And then I guess there's the whole talk about dairy congestion. So the dairy we're seeing now is not really the dairy that our grandparents had even 70 years ago. It hasn't come straight from the crowd. It's been sitting on the shop shelves. It's been gone through numerous processes. Often it can be in a plastic container. Who knows if that plastic container has BPAs in it? So. Yeah. So you basically do not recommend it, but it's amazing how many kids will come in and tell me that that's what they've been told to use. I know. And I think that's where the education needs to come in at a higher level to the coaches. And then the coaches often say, well, that's what I did myself and I'm completely fine. Oh, I hear that all the time. And I try, you know, to just explain that we know a little bit more about it and ways to help the kids and because there's so much more access to these sugary drinks than they were even when the coaches were younger it's it it's a real thing so water quite honestly but I will definitely recommend the magnesium as you say but I really try to encourage water and I think when it comes to competitive sport there is a lot of push for non-nutritive calorie consumption We have a family friend who's a cardiologist and he made this comment, I think sport's really bad for you. And we all laugh, but he was right. He was like, you play a team sport, you might have some orange juice afterwards. Often the team will go out to McDonald's afterwards to celebrate their win. Like there's a whole culture of unhealthy eating around competitive sport. And a lot of the kids you see and I see, they do play competitive sports. So I think a big part of educating them is how they can do that. They can get their bodies to perform at their best, not just in the short term, because these non-nutritive calories like the Gatorade, they will provide short-term game. They'll give you more energy for the game. You might play better on that day, but it's the long-term effects. Like you say, the spike in blood sugar, the acidity, the sugar. Yeah, the sugar, the sugar, the sugar. I try, sometimes I'll actually pull up on my computer a picture of exactly how much in either teaspoons or, you know, usually the picture I use online is one where it it literally shows how many teaspoons. And when people see that and realize that they wouldn't add that many if they were making something on their own, they become more aware of just how much sugar is is in it. So absolutely. And I think the thing about sugar is it's not just, you know, causing dental decay or causing us to get fat, is these constant insulin spikes that can then lead to a lot of metabolic diseases down the track. And I'd love to unpack that with you a little bit more as a pediatrician. How do you address that in your practice? 
Yeah, that's when I really get to talking about regular meals versus letting that sugar drop. And I also talk about combinations of foods. I don't go into macros, you know, I don't know about where you are, but that's like a big buzzword, you know, the macronutrients. And I'm not saying that that's bad, good or bad. I'm just saying what I teach them is if you're going to have, let's say a piece of toast, I try to say, let's maybe, and I give actually give them suggestions of what kind of bread to buy that is better for them, that has a lower, you know, index of sugar. But then I tell them, combine it with protein, for example, and a healthy fat, where this way, they're going to get more bang for their buck. In other words, the way that their body is going to utilize that nutrition. And so I really focus on how the food helps and makes us feel. And then also how, you know, for the day, I heard from a nutritionist, a hungry mind does not learn. And so I really try to focus on regular meals. And even for athletes in particular, eating almost every three hours, but I don't tell them they have to eat a large quantity of food. It's more about what they eat. And then it is really about how much. And you made an important point there about combining the carb with protein or fat, because then that regulates the release of the blood sugar. So then you don't get such a rapid insulin spike, which is then what can lead to type two diabetes in adulthood and a whole host of other metabolic diseases. Oh, I know. And I also, when getting back to oral health, I try to explain to my patients too especially once their adult teeth are in, I'll joke and say, you know, these are the teeth you're going to have for the rest of your life and how much you need to take care of them. But we already know, although I'm not an adult physician, we know that there are things that are so important, taking care of your oral health down the road, leading to things like heart disease and so on. So it's hard though. Like you mentioned, teenagers can, they, they live in the now. They don't really, you know, developmentally, they feel they're immoral. They don't think about the future. So I try understanding that that in and of itself, development can be a barrier. I just try to hope that they can make one or two changes. And then I try to follow up because I know if I was told, look, you need to drink this much water and eat regular meals and get eight hours of sleep and, you know, brush your teeth twice a day and flood. I mean, there's a lot and it sounds so simple, but if I know that they need to do all those things, I'll ask them, what's one thing you think you can do? And then we work up to the other, the other things. Because I want them to be successful. And I don't know how you ate when you were younger, but I know in my 20s and in the later years of my degree, I would have like a wheat-based breakfast cereal for breakfast, sandwiches for lunch, pasta for dinner. Didn't think anything of it. It's just what you ate. I know. I know. I mean, I'm grateful that we didn't, for me, I'm old enough that I can say we didn't have McDonald's back then, but I'm just as you know, I was growing up, I remember that's when processed foods really, and we had no idea at that time how bad it was for us. Thankfully, now, I think most the young people in this generation do understand. However, it's, they're still combating old habits of either their parents or grandparents. And so I try to work, you know, 
very sensitively with families and understand the dynamic as well. That's an interesting point because yes, like you, processed food was only becoming more popular as I was growing up and my parents never had it. And so when I moved away from home, I relied on it because it was convenient, which is why we have it because it's convenient. I know. I know. I do. There's a whole thing about, we can talk about just how to meal plan and so on, but it's it's not easy. I know even for myself, like you said, I, I often bring up things that I either did with my own children or, you know, my own downfalls. And I, I like doing that with my patients too, because then they realize I'm human and I'm not trying to ask them to do this astronomical thing for their own health. But I just try to let them understand. Education for me is probably one of the most important things in my practice, which is probably why I always run behind. (laughs) I completely agree with you on that one. I think education is really important because then people can understand why we're recommending something. There's no point just being told to do something. Sarah, it's been wonderful talking to you. I feel like we've covered a lot of ground here, gone off on a lot of tangents. Now you have your own podcast as well. I do. I do. It's called Growing Up with Dr. Sarah. And I started it for that very reason that our time with patients becomes shorter and shorter. And so I wanted to have something that families can listen to and learn more, basically things that I feel that I don't have the time to really talk about in my own practice. And I'm having a lot of fun. I've gotten to meet wonderful people like yourself. And so I just started, so I'm still, I haven't even hit 50 yet, but uh, I'm really excited about growing and where it's taking off so far. Congratulations. So people can find that on all the usual platforms, iTunes, Spotify. Yes, on all of those. And like I said, it's just growing up with Dr. Sarah. And I think the topics are really anywhere from anxiety to even newborn diaper issues, you know, so it's very uh, broad. It's all general peds, but pediatrics, but hopefully, you know, people can pick and choose what they find is relevant for their family right now. And if anybody wants to contact you, what's the best way to get in touch? So I would say on social media, you can find me on Growing Up With Dr. Sarah. It's the same. And also, if they have any questions, that's probably the easiest way to get in touch with me and most consistent. Is that Instagram and Facebook? Are those your social media platforms? Yes. I also have a website that is Growing Up with drsarah.com and they can contact me through that way too. Wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, especially about something, although I'm not a dentist, I'm still very passionate about. Thank you for listening to the podcast. It would mean so much to me if you could take the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. It really helps spread awareness on what I think is a very important topic, the mouth-body connection. Thanks so much and have a great day. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Mind, Body, Mouth. If you like what you heard and want to learn more, visit mindbodymouth.com.au for show notes, links to resources mentioned in this episode, and more valuable information about the mouth-body connection. The information contained within this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be taken as medical advice. For specific advice on your own health needs, consult with a health practitioner.